From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. My grandfather stood to his tradition not out of a desire to look back, but rather to think about what is the function of bread. And for him, like for my father and like for me, bread is not only a food for the body, but it should also be a food for the mind. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks, and you're tuning in for day four of our baking week. And you just heard from today's guest, Apollonia Poulain. Now, Apollonia is the CEO of Poulain, the world-famous bakery that her grandfather, Pierre, opened in Paris in 1932. And bread has always been in her DNA. In fact, she writes that she, quote, began life cradled in a crib made from a bread basket. But she took the helm of the family business much earlier than she expected, when her parents tragically and suddenly died. It's hard to overstate the significance of Poulain the Bakery. In her grandfather's footsteps, her father helped cement the bakery's status with influential fans, including befriending Salvador Dali. Their breads have nourished heads of state and are shipped to more than 40 countries today. These days, Ina Garten is a loud cheerleader for both the bread and Apollonia, and Martha Stewart has said that the P on their loaves is short for perfect. And now Apollonia has translated life and recipes from the bakery to the pages with her first cookbook, Poulain, The Secrets of the World Famous Bread Bakery. It's filled with history, moody photos, and of course, recipes. In today's show, we'll talk about what it was like growing up Poulain, about taking over the family business in the wake of tragedy and running it from across the globe, and about the recipes in the book, which range from Poulain's breads to cookies, tarts, and dishes that use bread as an ingredient. That's today on on day four of Salt and Spine Baking Week. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Apollonia Poulain joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Apollonia. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Great. We are thrilled to have you on Salt and Spine. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Of course. And we're here to talk about um, your first cookbook, aptly titled Poulain. But I thought maybe we'd start before we get to the book um, for people who might not be familiar by talking about Pan Poulain, the bakery, Mm -hmm. um, and some of the history there that leads us into your life and, and how you came to writing this cookbook. So tell us a little bit about Pan Poulain and the, the bakery, which your grandfather, Pierre, opened in, I think, 1932. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Okay. My grandfather, Pierre, was the first baker um, in our family. He started our family business in Saint-Germain-des-Prés. Uh, it's an area of Paris that's um, center-west, and in the early 30s, it was up-and-coming, and it is nowadays a really central neighborhood of um, the Parisian scene. And my father um, took over the business in the 70s, mm-hmm. developing its distribution and really structuring the neighborhood bakery and, you know, the very beginnings of our distribution. Sure. Um, I took over 17 years ago after my parents passed away in an accident. Mm-hmm. I was taking a year off before I went to college. Right. And my parents passed away um, suddenly in a helicopter accident, which was one of my father's passions. Right. Um, he, he would fly helicopters. He, he would. Um, and I took over sooner than planned, but with the sense of obviousness that that was where I was supposed to be. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about growing up in that environment then, and then we'll sort of go through your life leading us to the cookbook. Um, so as a child, I imagine you spent 
a lot of time around the bakery at the bakery. Can you tell us what that was like, sort of like growing up with that experience? It was amazing. Yeah. Um, growing up in the family's business. And I realized this, um, hearing about other children's childhoods was very, very, very unique. Uh-huh. First of all, I had a playground where I could give life to all of my little cookie and bread dough figurines and other creations sure. um, that was pretty extraordinary. Although I will tell you that um, the baker and pastry chef would collide to make sure that whenever they had had too much of me, they would ship me over to the <laughs> other room. Yeah. Um, growing up, I earned my pocket money working at the bakehouse, uh-huh. but I mainly learned a lot of what was going on in the business. Um, I was learning the nuts and bolts beyond my father's grooming. Um, sure involuntarily, but um, all of his teachings by putting away the invoices at the end of the month, filing them, you know, this was before we all had all these fancy computers we have now, right? or giving the change and learning how to count. And I can tell you, you learn fast when um, an elderly gentleman tells you that you should be counting faster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. But, but it was, it was also really wonderful memories of sitting in the back room of Vitre du Cherche Midi, which is intrinsically a small facade, uh, a small brick-clad facade in which you enter into the store where you have breads to your left and um, our cookies and accessories to the right. You have the cash register in the front. In the back room, we do the, it's, it's the office space, really, uh-huh. but, you know, we serve breakfast in the morning with the teams. We will have, we'll use it as a prep room. And my grandfather used to sit there in a place where he could oversee everything, including me, putting little biscuits in bags. Okay. And as a kid, seeing him um, tell me how to properly package things was the kind of life lessons that, you know, I, th- I thought were just something common with all kids. Sure. And that's until I confronted my um, stories of my Wednesday afternoons and Saturdays with other kids. And I was like, oh no, this is kind of unique. Right. It is unique um, to grow up in that bakery, but also it's not just any bakery, right? I mean, it's, it's a very significant bakery and I think we can't deny the significance that Poulain plays or has in, in France and Paris and also on a global scale. And I think in particular, when your dad took over the business, sort of that was a focus of his, right? I mean, he was befriending people like Salvador Dali and really focused on expanding the business, opening, um, I think it's the manf- manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah. Which is another... Um, place where you're baking baking another piece of art in and of itself sure yeah yeah, because it's it's so uniquely designed is that right yeah it is it it really is the artwork and um baby so to speak and i say this um um all the more lovingly that um it was designed around the time i was born my um my parents my mom is an architect and my father as a baker conceived of a place where we would house 24 ovens mm-hmm. that would act as 24 independent bakeries next to the other, but in one space um, to produce quantity right. to face demand without compromising on quality. So it's one baker that from start to finish creates his own batch. And you're right. My father had followed his father's footsteps, but when he was 14 years old, he was essentially forced into the family business uh-huh. and probably not knowing where he wanted to go professionally. Um, and having been forced into the family business, he, he 
got a lot of time to think about what did his craft uh, meant to him. And what he realized in the years, and I'm speeding up the sure. <laughs> the process here right. a lot or simplifying things a lot, uh-huh. but he realized that bread connects with just about anything. And that's a lot of what he taught me and my sister. Our parents had an insatiable hunger and thirst to learn, to discover, and to share with the world. And so that's what got him to meet Salvador Dali at a time where Saint-Germain-des-Prés was the host of such artists. And it's still a tradition that goes on today. I mean, it dates back to when my grandfather bartered bread for art Uh with his neighbors. And it also is today that artwork that we receive through the mail um, and that slowly takes and finds places in the back room of the bakery sure. or some of the artworks that my father um, created himself for his imagination and for his thoughts on bread baking. He made yeah. this beautiful bird cage made out of bread oh. where very poetically the bird eats his way out to freedom. Wow. But because you were referencing Dali, the back room of the bakehouse, sorry, the back room of the bakery has this chandelier, um, this bread chandelier, which is a copy of what, the one we did for Salvador Dali. Ever since in the early 70s, um, the artist commissioned my father to make a whole bedroom made out of bread. And since then, every time we redo the chandelier, which can be a couple of months if the weather has been really dramatic and very hot, very cold, and very, you know, variations have been very drastic, or to a couple of years. Um, And every time, the baker who's in charge will do something where they bring their own unique take and desire that yeah. at that moment. So right now, the chandelier has is clad with uh, wheat ears, and it's very luscious, okay. it's very beautiful. And previously, it had birds on it. Wow, I love that. And because of a lot of what your father did and building on your grandfather's legacy, Poland sort of became synonymous with good bread uh, in Paris in particular and, and pretty much the world over. And, and Alice Waters, our, our local friend here in the Bay Area, wrote the foreword to your book. And she says, too, that all of the good bread that we have now in the United States is thanks to Poland's beautiful bread. And folks like Steve at Acme Bakery here in the Bay Area sort of all trace back to this concept that started, I think, with your grandfather of focusing on sourdough, which Mm -hmm. was unique at the time, and then focusing on these, I think they're called hug-sized loaves. Can you tell us about those, both of those sort of aspects, the sourdough and the type of bread that sort of set Poland apart at the beginning? Yeah. So what's one of, so when I do use um, this, this idea of a hug-sized bread, Uh and, and that's just because I'm half French, half American, and as I started working on the book, I was like, I need to explain what the sheer size of this loaf is. And, you know, when you think bread, you think, oh, a, a tiny little loaf, it'll fit in your hand uh-huh. or, or, you know, something that you'll eat with a few friends over for dinner. Sure. I mean, my bread will, will feed you, you know, it'll <laughs> feed probably a dozen people at least. Right. And so I was trying to figure out the volume. I was like, if I give a number, it's going to be a little, it's going to sound a little mathematical, let alone the fact that if you're thinking in inches versus centimeters, that's right. in a whole other realm of things. Right. So I extended my hands in front of me and I realized, well, you know, it's like hugging someone. Yeah. Um, so and that's, so you're doing that's, that right and, now for, yeah, for and, listeners well, who can't I mean, see you know, you're sort of outstretching exactly, your hands stretching entirely. My, I mean, yeah. So the weed sourdough bread tradition in my family's business stems from my grandfather having been born and raised in Normandy. And the tradition at Poilan starts with my grandfather needing to differentiate himself from 
his neighbors. Mm-hmm. Um, and the competition was very fierce back in the thirties. There was, my father told me that there was up to six bakeries on our block. Oh, wow. Okay. And so that's, that's how, you know, telling wow. it, it is in Paris and in France, but especially in Paris, there really is a bakery at every street corner and bakeries are usually at the crossroads of, of a neighborhood. Uh-huh. And, my grandfather started baking a bread that was different from the fashion at the time, which was for white breads and smaller formats to differentiate himself. And he was successful because it came at a time and at a place where the artists and craftsmen that worked in Saint-Germain-des-Prés wanted a bread that would feed their day's work and would keep. And, you know, we also ate more bread back then than we do now. I mean, an average Frenchman would eat 900 grams of bread per day per person, which is about a little over half of what one of our breads is right. uh, in volume. So it's a, a lot, lot of, of bread. bread. Yeah. So so that's where this tradition stems from. Post-World War II, again, my grandfather was going against the grain by doing this bread that was on the darker side. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it wasn't so much that he, it wasn't so much the volume as much as bread that wasn't using extremely white flour. And right. that reminded most French people the years of deprivation, the war years where you could not afford to waste some of the grain flour. Sure. And so you'd use whiter flour. Industrialization in France picked up. The quality and also the necessity of feeding um, the baby boom generation picked up. But my grandfather stood to his tradition, not out of a desire to look back, but rather to think about what is the function of bread? Mm. And for him, like for my father and like for me, bread is not only a food for the body, but it should also be a food for the mind. So it should really feed you inside physically for the moment, but also be something that therefore allows you to have the freedom that, um, to think about other things. And so bread has to keep has to make for your work day one way or the other. And I can tell you when I was in college, having two slices of my bread for breakfast was my thing and what sure. helped me survive the morning. Yes. But it was also the connections and the culture of bread that they nurtured through their connections with artists, um, but also all kinds of other connections. My father told me very lovingly about his first encounter with a group of perfumers who had asked him, about what are the flavors and scents in bread baking. And that for me, as he explained it, um, is my father, I'm interpreting a little bit his words, but for me, I feel it was a game changer for him. Okay. Um, because he at that point understood that his craft was really unique. Um, he may have understood at that until then that he was doing a craft in a different way than most, but, sure. and he referenced it in some of his previous uh, books. But when he explained to me, and I was a, you know, an adolescent, um, the attention he received by this group of perfumers made him understand how the bread connects with just about anything. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, and, and I, to this day, love my craft among other things because it connects me to the world. And it's something that's very basic, very grounding, very elementary, mm-hmm. but yet so far fetching. So you noted that your dad was sort of pulled into the business, Mm -hmm. maybe somewhat unwillingly when he was 14. I think your grandfather also wasn't set out to be a baker. He was interested in being an architect, right? That's absolutely right. And Uh, he didn't have the money for college and sort of fell into it. Yep. But you, I think I'm understanding, maybe took an interest in it at some point. When did that sort of happen to you when you sort of started to think maybe this was what you wanted to do? So when I was a kid, um, 
the bakery really was my playground. So right. there was a lot of sense of obviousness. The bakery was, you know, the place where I would, where I would naturally eventually make my way. Sure. Um, but what's interesting is my father having had the experience of being forced into the family business really forced me and my sister think about what did we want to do? Not forcing us into the family business okay. and to the point where on several occasions, people would ask my father in our, in my presence, what does your daughter want to do? They would say that as if I couldn't answer right. for myself. Right. And, and my father would say, Oh, you know, she's thinking maybe eventually why not one day take over? And it was cute because my father knew I wanted to take over the family business and having been forced into the business by his father, he really, really, really throughout his life always put a f few words to make it, to leave it open to what I wanted to do. Sure. Yeah. And because of that, I, in many ways, had that sense of obviousness, and I chose my craft. Yeah. And what's remarkable is that when I took over the family business when I was 18 years old, um, some 17 and a few days ago, I can tell you that there hasn't been a day where my business hasn't surprised me in a positive way. Mm. Yes, of course, there's easier days than others, um, sure. but I understand and often have thought I understand why my father um, loved his craft so much. And yeah. I think that over the years, I've also uncovered other aspects of my craft. And that's why I've been in the same position for 17 years, but I don't feel that I've done the same job for 17 okay. years. <laughs> yeah, every day is different. Yeah. Every day is different. So you you mentioned earlier that you're, you're 18 and your parents are tragically killed mm -hmm. in a helicopter accident. And I think Pretty much the next day, you decided yep. you would take over. You literally the next day showed up and, and mm. rolled into your father's office chair. Is that right? That's exactly right. Was there um, any hesitation on your part? No, of like, I mean, really not. And yeah. to be perfectly transparent to, uh -huh. to, I received a phone call, um, on, on the day of my parents' accident. And a friend of my father's calls me up and asks me, um, if I was aware of, uh, what had, um, what had happened to my parents. And it made me realize that my parents hadn't called me to say that, um, they had arrived to, to destination. Uh -huh. Um, and understanding the word of helicopters, my first thought was, you know, it, this is not sounding good. Um, so for me, it was very obvious that I was the one who was going to step up. Yeah. I did think, should I take a CEO? And then the immediate thought after that, and you know, you have to understand that growing up in a, in a family business, you really are conditioned and immersed in an environment. So you don't have the same apprehension of things than you would if you were just parachuted into, um, into a place. Sure. So I remember thinking, you know, a CEO would not know all of the things that I know and the time it would take to explain to that person what to do would have been longer than me taking over with my father's um, managers uh -huh. and surrounded um, thereafter by friends of my parents. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's been 17 years. I still work with some of the teams back then and there's new generations that have also stepped in and it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. You felt this responsibility to sort of assume the responsibility. Oh my God. The never felt the responsibility of no? it. I, for me, taking over the family business had a sense of obviousness uh -huh. and then never questioned. Yeah. Never, ever questioned. My sister and I often, you know, think, you know, if ever there is that question, we can always close down the business. But huh. for us, no, I mean, like it's, there is a sense of obviousness. I'm like, sure. It's not, yeah. It's my place. Actually, the only real question I had when my parents passed away, 
as you suggested, and this is effectively what happened, from one day to the next, instead of going to the bakehouse where I was working um, after college during my year off, right. um, I went up to my father's office and effectively took over the, the um, operations. But the real question for me was, what do I do with my college admission? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was 10 months away from the um, start beginning of school. Right. Had been admitted at Harvard, which... Right. Don't turn down. <laughs> yeah. Um, generally not. Generally not. Um, and so I had 10 months ahead of me to decide what do I do? And for me, the question was more of how will I make that work out yeah. than anything else? And the first couple of weeks in college were hard because I had envisioned an organization that didn't quite work. I adapted a few things, lost a few nights of sleep sure. over it. I was surrounded by a great group of friends who supported me because you were running the business from Cambridge, mm-hmm. right? Like I was, but yeah. my degree in economics, um, and any economics student at Harvard will tell you that it's one of the majors, which requires the least lab hours. So it did give me a lot of time outside of the classroom to okay. do other things. And a lot of kids, you know, had extracurriculars, some of which were, you know, international sports players. So I don't think that my situation was all that different than students who were running student organizations um, involved in sports um, at a varsity level or for some of my classmates um, at an international level. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Apollonia Poulan, author of Poulan, The Secrets of the World Famous Bread Bakery. Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Angela Lawson to Samin Nostra and Alison Roman to This Week, Baking Week, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish exclusive and delicious recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Bay Area listeners, join us to celebrate the 2019 Baking Week at Salt and Spine this Sunday, December 15th at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco for our annual cookie swap. Last year, we had over a thousand cookies being exchanged by some of our listeners, and this year we're upping the fun with a live podcast recording with the stars of the La Cocina cookbook. Plus, we have baking demos from former guests Maria Ziska and Baking week guest, Hetel Vasavada. If you love cookies, you won't want to miss it. Find out more at civickitchensf.com, and we hope to see you there. And now, back to our conversation with Apollonia Poulan, author of Poulan, The Secrets of the World Famous Bread Bakery. So 17 years later, now you've published this book, 17 mm-hmm. years after taking over. When did you decide you were going to write a cookbook and and include you know so much of your story, so much of the, the history of Poulan in this book? So I had the idea of this cookbook when I managed to keep my bread more or less fresh for over 10 days. And that to me was somewhat of a revelatory moment or experience because I've always loved my craft. But at that point, having a piece of bread in my hand that was over 10 days old, I realized this bread is unique and I'm super proud of what my grandfather, my father and I have been doing, but mainly what my grandfather and father have done. And I thought for all of my pride, I also want to make sure that the world knows about this. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I wanted to share this is because it's 
there's no preservatives. My breads um, of wheat, rye, and corn um, I've developed over the past decade uh-huh. are all breads that have very simple ingredients, are handmade, not because it's old-fashioned, but because it makes a difference in the quality of the product. Sure. And that's what I wanted to document. All of our take on baking, which is very much centered on your five senses. It takes us nine months to train a baker because we acknowledge that seasons and time make for the understanding and the appropriation of all of what will make your craft know-how and expertise ultimately in baking. Sure. And then the other aspect of things was I kept my bread for 10 days and I used it, yes, for bread and butter. Right. But a whole other bunch of things. Um, and there's a wealth of recipes out there, historical. I mean, ask your grandmother. Ask any elderly generation about what they did with old bread. They all have a recipe. And what I call bread cooking, using bread from crust to crumb, from day one to the day where it's absolutely stale, right. is about telling people that bread is not only a food, it's also a fantastic ingredient. One that can be turned to not waste a crumb. One that um, can be used as a substitute for another ingredient. Mm -hmm. Just to give you an example, if you use breadcrumb that you toast, it has the taste of Parmesan, or at least I had read about that. Sure. And that's what prompted me to do um, a parsley pesto. And so just to walk you through the thought process, because it's very representative of the R&D work and the Uh way we can work in my bakery on projects um, and our outlook on, on my world of cereal grains and fermentation. Right. So I had heard that Parmesan could be used, uh, replaced by breadcrumbs and pesto being with basil, olive oil, pine nuts. I thought, well, you know, the walnut bread could replace both the pine nuts mm-hmm. and the Parmesan. Okay. And yeah. so I thought, oh, well, ground one for the other. Right. And I thought basil, but basil in Paris, we don't get it all year round. It's not doesn't doesn't grow all year round in Paris. Sure. And so I thought, well, parsley grows much more easily, so why not replace it by that? And so that's the sort of thought process um, that came about. And, and this is, and it really is about the Poilin spirit and my parents' um, education growing up on how to use recipes as building blocks, how yeah. to not be stuck by one ingredient and just think creatively about what you have at hand. Yeah, I think that's such a refreshing piece of the book, too, is people might pick it up wanting to bake your breads, of course, but then have all of these bonus recipes, too, for ways that the bread has life beyond sort of bread and butter. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So my bread has three drivers, recipe-wise. It's recipes of how to make at home, Uh Poilin recipes, and they are home-adapted recipes in acknowledgement that you cannot recreate the volume were the tools at home the same way that you would at the bakery. Right. But I want my readers and bakers using my book to have a moment and experience of what it is to bake with your five senses. Mm -hmm. The second driver is how to use bread from crust to crumb. Mm -hmm. Um, The no no crumb left behind spirit, (laughs) as I like to put it, and I put it in my proposal. Um, and using bread from day one to the last day, it can possibly be transformed. Yeah. And that's because everyone has their preference for ultra fresh bread or for rather stale bread. Sure. And it is an invitation to try and look at another 
um, stage of breads and say, well, each stage is unique and you don't have to stick to just one. Yeah. And you will obviously find a recipe that suits your taste. Sure. Yeah. You also include a recipe for your father's bread sandwich. Which yes. Which I think is comical and wonderful and I, and, I'm and so, by it. Yeah. It's, it's both light and, and deep in thought and reflection mm-hmm. and, and it has... It's a literal bread sandwich, right? It For is people who a literal bread sandwich. And it's like, it's <laughs> bread on bread. It's bread on bread. <laughs> yeah. Because, so it started, it, it definitely started as a joke. Okay. Yeah. Um, using bread as a sandwich filler, mm-hmm. but there's more to that sandwich. And I think what my father wanted to state when he would talk about that recipe was how essential bread has been in our lives um, as a civilization, sure. um, bringing attention to the taste of the bread we eat, a historical acknowledgement of how much bread people used to eat. Right. The recipe I provide in the book is one that I voluntarily kept a little simple, but I did take a, my father did it with three slices of the wheat sourdough loaf, but uh-huh. I did it using like rye sourdough uh-huh. um, bread because I wanted to have a little bit of a, a tweak in color and a tweak in, um, in taste, but you could do it with any quality bread that has, say, you use my rye and raisin bread. That would be another filler yet. Yeah. Um, and, and I want you to take this book home and to clad it with food stains and, um, sticky notes where you put all of your different iterations, but the bread sandwich are two slices of bread the wheat sourdough bread toasted only on one side, which mm-hmm. makes for the moist and the crunch, the difference in texture, but it also as it, as the toast cools down, it still becomes really fun to eat and to eat, um, through. Sure. And the middle part is untoasted rye bread, little butter in between uh-huh. and eat it through. And I can promise you, you will not regret it. It is a very unique experience. Yeah. I'm so intrigued by that. I'm going to have to try that. So we're a show on cookbooks. So we always like to talk a little bit about influences of yours or how you sort of approach this cookbook. I pulled down a few books by people I know who have been um, meaningful to you, but are there particular authors or works um, that have been important to you? And I know you have written that your father had amassed thousands of books and cookbooks on, on bread. On bread. Yes. Yeah. He collected books Paintings, de facto, but also drawings, uh, political satires, um, posters on bread. I mean, any and a few artifacts as well. We have we have a beautiful um, collection of bread books. Um, yeah. One that I'm really proud of of having. And are there authors or works that have been really influential to you? I know you you said um, you have baking mentors and guardian angels in the book, and those include Alice Waters and Dory Greenspan and Ina Garten. And these are very important ladies in in my life or in growing up because I grew up in a French-American environment. Um, We had a very open house uh, policy in my home. So I most days I came home to incredible people, um, and fantastic conversations. Um, and so meeting people like Dory, Ina, Alice, learning about things that happened halfway around the world shaped my childhood and explain a lot of why the ingredients in the books, um, recipes are sometimes a little far-fetched and of course you can substitute them for, you mm-hmm. know, more local ingredients or ingredients that you feel closer to. Sure. But I decided to not shy away from doing it the way that I've been 
fortunate to taste and want to have um, at, in my in my home. Yeah. Um, you know, I may not be the best cook, but I am not afraid of trying. And that's that should be the spirit in which you should open up this book. I love that. So we always end with little games. Mm-hmm. So I thought um, I actually was very excited to see some of the other recipes in the book for using bread and, and your no crumb left behind approach. So we have some cards next to you that have different categories on them. And I thought we'd play a couple rounds where you can draw some ingredients from there and know that we also have bread as an ingredient okay. and see if we might be able to come up with a recipe that we could. Sounds exactly um, like the way I approach my cooking at home. Perfect. <laughs> so okay. Hopefully I'll okay. do a good job so here. So we've got some bread and feel free to draw from any of those. And the secret ingredient deck, the blue one is just sort of a I want to tap into that one because that one sounds It little... can be sort of obscure. It can be not so. So, but it's a, okay. it's a fun one. It's sort of the do wild card. Do you mind if I pull out the Go one? Go for I'm it. Kind of test my imagination here. Dragon fruit. Ooh. Okay. Okay. So if dragon fruit isn't too juicy. I love to spoon dragon fruit. So let's see. Oh, I know. Something you could do with dragon fruit is do a fruit salad uh-huh. where you would cube the dragon fruit, or maybe even if you have that melon uh, tool, do oh, little sure. balls of, of dragon fruit. Yeah. And then you could do it with, and because there's not too much juice in it, you could cut up some day old brioche into cubes uh-huh. and dragon fruit doesn't have such a strong flavor to it. It has more of a texture. So I don't know if citrus fruits would be the best suited, but you'd want to have a, some sort of a, a syrup or something. Okay. Um, maybe, so you're thinking it's sort of like a fruity panzanella almost? Kind of, yeah. yeah. That's that's what I would think. Um, and then I would try and work. So you'd have the brioche cubes building blocks. What I would do is maybe just ever so slightly toast them to per- okay. to make them so that they don't suck up too much juice mm-hmm. and find one or two other uh, fruits that would work well in combination with them and to create like more of a saucy aspect to it. Sure. Um, and and then probably bring on um, a spice, but I'm not really sure which one would, would work well. I have this sort of ginger thought right now, mm-hmm. but there's also c- citrus, which just a mix of like orange segments, clementines, maybe a little bit of grapefruit, actually. Mm-hmm. Grapefruit and dragon fruit. Okay, off the top of my head, brioche, grapefruit segments, um, the dragon fruit in a cube or a little marble-sized uh-huh. balls, and maybe some sp- type of spice. Maybe if you're a little cheeky, I would sort of I would want to toast some black sesame and just mislead people and see if that uh-huh. works well. But I know that sesame can be very overpowering, so yeah. TBD. Okay, <laughs> on that one, I love that. I love the direction that's going. Um, let's do one more. Okay, what do you feel like? Flavor, vegetables, or protein? Ooh, I'm feeling um, flavor, maybe. Flavor? Nutmeg. Oh, nutmeg is good. It's funny because at home, I have nutmeg next to a black cardamom. Oh. And black cardamom has a very, almost tire-like uh, flavor to it. Uh-huh. Nutmeg, I would I would definitely use nutmeg in my spice bread. But if you're cooking with it, a little bit like sage, I would want to have it on something savory to sort of like open up your palate. So maybe use some breadcrumbs. And if you're a little adventurous, actually I would probably put rye bread, breadcrumbs, nutmeg, a black pepper. I want to choose a black pepper that has a depth to it. Not one that's like some one that's very long, maybe even that the the long, the long um, pepper, pepper, yeah. Pepper And, and just 
pan fry a white fish, for example, or okay. maybe a small turkey steak or or, or something, and sure. do a little schnitzel. Um, I don't know. It's just a thought. I like nutmeg yeah. in uh, with um, with um, meats and fish. Yeah, and, and savory. Yeah, applications. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's so interesting. I love seeing this little glimpse into your R and D process. Thank you. I love your game because that's exactly the way I approach my cooking at home. It's like get into my kitchen. Right. I have a few things, and I'm like, well, this has been. I have this there, or I went to the market, and that's that was the product. It was there, and then opportunity. What do I feel like cooking? Who am I inviting? What's the spirit um, that I want to be sharing my meal with? And and that's usually my starting point. Right. And from experience. I've always had a bag of pasta in my closet for the on chance that something really didn't turn out, but sure. it's, it's always been loads of fun to just try and experiment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I loved the little glimpse we got of that. This was so much Thank fun. You. Thank you so much for joining us, Apollonia. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Polan, the walnut bread parsley pesto and rice bread. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the current issue, hear from three women, Lenore Estrada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. John of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies on how they're speaking out on behalf of women and minority-owned businesses, building up their operations, and paying it forward to their communities. You can subscribe now to ensure you don't miss any compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at ediblesanfrancisco.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back tomorrow with another story behind the baking books you love. 